Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We talk about Sajid Javid's departure. We talk about the Marmo review into... And people laugh at me incessantly <laughs> about the fact I can't pronounce the Marmo review, Marmot review. Anyway, all that and much more on this week's exciting <laughs> Super Sore Away episode of the New Statesman podcast. So, Sadia Javid, who resigned a fortnight ago, however long ago, has done his sort of personal statement, which is a bit where often used for personal remarks, but mainly is used by departing ministers to explain why they've departed. And there are basically two flavours of that statement. The kind of like, I love the Prime Minister and I'm looking forward to working constructively from the backbenches. And then there's the... Geoffrey Howe. Yeah. It was the first good one in a very, very long time. In terms of, wrong to conceive politics of a spectator sport, but in terms of what it actually said, he said stuff in terms of, you know, substantive policy critique of the of the government compared to Boris Johnson's own personal statement after resigning. Not that he gave a personal statement, he gave a speech in a Brexit debate, which was terrible, but Javits was pretty out there. Yeah, and essentially what he did was he basically went, you know, I love you, you're wonderful, great guy, but did I mention that I think your economic policy is terrible? It was a real mic drop moment at the end. I thought I love that kind of political communication when you're really, really scathing with a smile on your face and you end on a positive note and, like, and you say, you know, you have my full support and, you know, I can't wait to see you get it done. When everything was, was just so so absolutely scathing and you could sort of see on the front bench people like Priti Patel calculating about how to respond to that you can see in the background when Boris Johnson jumps up to be like can I thank the honourable gentleman for you know his service and for his grace blah that Jacob Rees-Mogg there's a sort of flash of concern for a second when I think he he thinks that maybe Boris Johnson is going to engage with the substance of it and then you can see Priti Patel sort of nodding and realising that that's all he's going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, as you wrote in your piece, it's it's an important moment for the Johnson administration, and not in a good way, but as a as an early marker of rumblings of discontent on the Tory backbenches about their, their spending yeah, plans, basically. And, and also beyond that, I think this is mm-hmm. one of those... This, the whole Sajid Javid story, not just what he said, is a sort of defining moment for this government because... It sums up so many things that a lot of Conservative MPs are concerned about in terms of Boris Johnson's character and his 
sort of fitness to be prime minister. So first of all, he promised Sajid Javid that he would be his chancellor and, and made when he made that speech. And, you know, now when you play that clip to, to your average member of the public, that again sort of hits that that note about Boris Johnson being untrustworthy that kept sort of coming up in the election campaign. And then also you have this idea that he's shining a light on the almost irreconcilable sort of economic divide that there is in the Conservative Party that has so far been kind of ameliorated and covered up by the fact that Boris Johnson had such a success at the election. And also this idea that we don't know how you know, willing these Conservatives are in the newer seats to drop that Conservative Mm. scepticism about borrowing in exchange for public investment that will be good for them electorally. So this is a really really interesting question. And there's another person who left government in the reshuffle that could be just as important as Sajid Javid. Well, not just as important as Sajid Javid, but someone people haven't spoken about who left government is Esther Bitvey, sacked from her position as housing minister attending cabinet. I'm sure listeners at home are saying, well, Esther Bitvey left government. That's Great. Yes, you know, it's funny and nobody likes Estimate Vey, apart from uh, the many members of her blue-collar conservatism group. By the way, more numerous than the than the One Nation Caucus, according to the the blue-collar conservatism group. I've not seen the, I've not seen their subscription numbers myself, but I'm going to take the word of a Tory MP I had a pint with last night. But anyway, because you know the, the blue-collar thing, the red wall, we're all told it's all about statist economics, etc., etc. Mm. Well, actually, the, the, the Tory MPs who won in 2017 from the the first bricks in the red wall, as it were, they all joined Liz Truss's freer free market sort of think tanky thing. And now they're all members. Now they and all the other their sort of colleagues in the 2019 intake are all members of the blue-collar Tory group. Now, obviously, we all know that's all about more police, more cash for the NHS better infrastructure. But actually a key plank of that is lower taxes for working people. It's the sort of Rob Halfond mm. school of keep the fuel duty freeze, reduce the tax burden on hardworking people. And the words, the really striking words this Tory MP from the 2017 entity used to me last night were, we don't want an Ed Miliband style programme of tax and spend, because that's where they feel this mm. economic thing will inevitably go. And if you're going to pump money into the economy in the way that Boris Johnson is talking about doing, then of course you're going to have to have an honest conversation about tax and spend at some point. Sanjay Javid clearly thinks, if you look at his Twitter likes, that that's the direction it's going in. And even though we've been told, and I think some people in number 10 think, well, you know, higher taxes, tax and spend is the price people in the red wall are willing to pay, mm. including our new MPs, if it means Darlington High Street is in better nick. I think some people are in for perhaps a rude awakening. Yeah, I mean, there's this really weird... I mean, there are always weird memes in political journalism, but I think the thing I'm finding weirdest is I feel that whenever I'm interviewed on, like, the BBC or television or you read... There's this weird implicit assumption that the new 2019 Conservative intakes are, like, really left-wing. Yeah. Mm. And maybe, and, you know, I know some of them listen to this, and if you're one of the ones I haven't spoken to and, and you feel that you are really left-wing, please do email me. But I just feel like whenever I talk to one of them, I don't noticeably sit there going, wow, I've I've spoken to a completely different type of Conservative. They are people firmly from the mainstream of Conservative thinking and this yeah so this idea lots of people seem to have that you know all of the new 50 mps are like do you know i'd really love uncontrolled borrowing or you know taxes to go up yeah it's just 
it's yeah. just it's just not it's, true. It's it's a different worldview. These people would be Labour candidates if they mm-hmm. didn't if they didn't believe in that stuff. Yeah. So mm-hmm. people find it hard to believe that representing a seat that has lots of X type of voters in it means that that you you might not necessarily believe everything that the former Labour MP for that seat believes. But otherwise, they would have been the Labour MP for that seat. Yeah. You see what I mean? And I think it's those two points combined. It's the fact that those new Tory MPs really aren't that different to the pre-existing ones. They just but, have accents. Yeah. Yeah. They're, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're Tories with accents. Um, <laughs> but then there's also the point about some people like Esther McVeigh. I'm glad you mentioned her because I had really noticed her lurking on the back benches for the first time. I think it was just a reminder of Sajid Javid's speech that as with all reshuffles, you bump quite talented people to the back benches. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I was looking around and I thought, you know, maybe because of that big majority, it's easy to think that that purge of particular kinds of Tories was successful or that everyone is completely on board with the Johnson project. But sort of looking around, you see Theresa May still there. Andrea Leadsom is there looking kind of sour-faced because she's clearly not happy about being sacked. Esther McVeigh is there. And you look down and you see Liz Truss still on the front bench. But we know that she is more aligned with Sajid Javid mm. than she is with Boris Johnson. It was just a reminder to me that there's a real body of thought there not just from presumably new MPs who are of the same sort of body of thought as as normal Tory MPs, but also that, the, you know, there's a, there is a body of experience on the back benches now, which is always the case with the reshuffle. But it's just interesting that there are people who are going to object to the government's economic plans and they have a kind of ringleader in Sajid Javid, as he demonstrated today. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was, that was always the question, which was when Sajid Javid resigned having risen through you know he said something really striking one of the most striking lines in his speech was i'm getting up to give my first backbench contribution since 2012 in eight years you know he he rose through the patronage of george osborne he basically has never not been in government and if you rise through patronage as we saw in you know the chukra munas of this world when you're then forced to lead on your own back it's actually it's actually quite difficult mm-hmm. if you've you know risen through the patronage of compass or Ed Miliband, or George Osborne, or whoever. And the live question was, is Sajid Javid willing or able to corral backbench opposition behind him? Or, even if he's not willing to do that actively, is he going to get up and say something beyond, this government's bloody brilliant, that means he can form a lightning rod for people to cohere around and organise around? And the answer today, I think, is yes. Yeah, I think that is, to me, the crucial... Well, I think there are two crucial... I think Alva's point reminded me of something on a conservative peer said to me in 2015 so after Cameron's first reshuffle of government we were sort of having a kind of catch up and I kind of said you know oh I think the reshuffle went pretty well from a conservative perspective and they said a reshuffle never goes well mm-hmm. and they said because at the end of the day the number of people you have sacked has gone up the number of people who feel you have passed them over has gone up and the number of people who believe that their interests are aligned with your future survival has gone down they were like, the perfect number of reshuffles for a government to have is zero. Mm. There are two other reasons why the Blair majority was covered as smaller than this one. The first and most important, of course, was that they went down from a super-duper majority to a merely big one. The second was that they were not coming into off the back of an era of 
no majority, so it didn't feel as large. But crucially, one of the other problems Blair had is that he had sacked more ministers than his majority. And that always mm. makes your majority feel smaller. And yeah, I think that point, you know, you have led some, again, someone who is not economically statist, mm. being sacked. Esther McVeigh, someone who is full low tax, being sacked. These people, as Patrick says, can all be lightning rods. And the big sort of known unknown we have is that if you speak to basically any Conservative MP with maybe about 10 exceptions, and you ask them to kind of do a like, you know, markets, yes, no kind of thing. Most of them would say that they broadly agreed with Sajid Javid's speech, right? They would say they mm-hmm. all thought taxes should be as low as possible and the budget had to balance. But they have never before been tested on that conviction, right? In the same way that if you'd spoken to people before Jeremy Corbyn became leader, you would know that there were lots of Labour MPs who had an ideological and moral objection to him becoming Prime Minister. However, we didn't know how willing they actually were to enact that caring and what their analysis of how best to act on it was it to be silent on the backbenches, will it to be vocal on the backbenches, will it to leave and form a new party? And similarly, we know there is a large chunk of Conservative MPs who will have nodded along, metaphorically, literally, of course, they will have decided nodding along was not a good look, nodded along to Sajid Javid's speech. And we still don't know, and the thing which I think will define this parliament is, what do those MPs do now that, for the first time ever, to be a Tory MP and a free marketer is not just like coterminous, you have to actually exert yourself in favour of being a free yeah, marketer. Yeah, and also Corbynism is an object lesson in this, right? The, the past two or so years in the Labour Party, particularly the 2017 Parliament, is that you had love socialism, hate Brexit, for instance, the pro-Corbyn, pro-Remain caucus on the on the on the Labour backbenches is a really interesting case study here. In that, yes, these people were all aligned with the Labour leadership on basically everything apart from one big issue. And once you sort of detach you know, once you give people an opportunity to, you know, they're caucusing, yeah, they're in support of the leadership, but then obviously if there is a cleavage, then they become quite dangerous in terms of the leadership's objectives. And this is the thing with blue-collar conservatism. The government is wearing the mantle of blue-collar Toryism. You know, it's great if you are the government and you're all about winning a Bolsover and, uh, and Bassett law and you've got the MPs in that group, you know, behind you. But then if you do something where you, you know, diverge from a big plank of what they want, you've basically fermented your own rebellion. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Us. Us. Patrick has had to leave to go to a prior engagement, but we have a question, not because he did, was so He just angry. didn't want to join in with the You Ask Us yeah. chorus. Yeah. And I've he noticed heard... he doesn't most weeks. Yeah, yeah we did have complaints in the <laughs> podcast feedback. Which I think are still going, and you should add to it. And don't worry, I will include that in his annual review. But we have a, quest- <laughs> we have a question from Mike Brown, 
which is you've mentioned before about how Starmer and Nandy are a bit of a mystery in terms of actual views. Was there a similar ambiguity around previous Labour leaders like Blair and Kinnock? Now, Anoush, you have known Lisa for some time now. You've interviewed her for this week's magazine, which I think is maybe the third interview you've done with her. I think it's the third. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean... Over the years. Yeah, so one, I mean, would you say that was a fair characterisation of Lisa Nandy's? So I have to say that from observing the leadership campaign so far... I can see why people have taken away this idea that what was the accusation in the question well, that they don't. Well, accusation that, they, that we've said that they are. Oh right, uh, but we, yeah. Then there's a bit of a mystery around them this, in terms of actual views. Yeah. yeah, this image of like you know, are they trying to say things to please everyone, and do they have a coherent sort of policy offer? But actually, from sort of researching everything that she said in this campaign ahead of the interview, really getting my head in what in what she said, and then actually speaking to her, I think that's probably a bit of an unfair accusation because her platform is interesting. So what you always said Stephen is that she's really interested in sort of improving bus services and sort of the general day-to-day life of people who live in towns like Wigan and the other places where Labour didn't lose Wigan but the places like Wigan where Labour's lost control and that doesn't necessarily marry up to a liberal sort of view of immigration and she's actually in favour of free movement of people which a lot of people say people in in the formerly red wall seats voted against when they voted for Brexit so the idea that that is incoherent has been sort of a theme that we've picked up on quite a lot here. And I did ask her about this. And I I was quite convinced by her answer because she said, look, I've always believed in free movement. I've worked with child refugees and I've always been a sort of champion of immigration to this country. My dad was an immigrant. Her dad's an Indian communist academic. She sees herself as Indian and also British and also, you know, European, etc. And she's always felt like that. And she actually hasn't wavered in, in saying any of those things over the years. I read a few interviews with her before Brexit had even happened when UKIP was threatening council seats in Wigan, which was a big concern for her and the Labour Party in, in the North West. And she's never sort of wavered from that point. So I, f- I find that consistent, even if we as journalists might find it jarring with the sort of policy offer that we expect from an, a politician like Lisa Nandy, who's been sceptical about, you know, Remain and the people's vote and has, has you know, voted for Boris Johnson's deal and, and said a few times that she might vote for Theresa May's deal if she brought it as a bill. So maybe that doesn't sound coherent, but I think it's consistent, which means that we know a lot more about Lisa Nandy and what her actual values are than we do know about Keir Starmer, for example. Yeah, I was going to say, I think then there's a, a fundamental difference in an, in an odd way, although we've definitely used the word ambiguous about both of them, we definitely mean two subtly different things. With, yes, with yeah. Lisa, there's a large corpus of views, and some of them have survived contact with this leadership election, and some of them haven't. Yeah. But we, our underlying assumption is that were Lisa and Andy to win the Labour leadership election, we feel we know what that would look like. And we feel we can divine that from the things she said, the MPs who know her best, who are backing her. Yeah. And we therefore have an idea about where that would end up and we therefore assume that the things which have been said in the leadership election which are a variance with it she doesn't really believe whereas with Keir Starmer because Keir Starmer had never really expressed any positions outside of Brexit Mm. up until this leadership election but we look at who his closest allies are we look at how the fact that it's hard to look at all of his support and come up with a coherent ideological position and we kind of go okay well there's clearly an ambiguity here right like we 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 find it harder to divine what his actual positions are but I think one of the interesting differences is that ultimately when Neil Kinnock ran to be Labour leader he'd been an MP for 13 years right 
which was quite short in some ways and was also partly a, a result of the, how bad the 83 loss was and the fact there had been quite a lot of turnover in the parliamentary party because of defections to the SDP. So he came with an existing back catalogue. Ditto, when Tony Blair, you know, obviously I, I very much enjoyed the great Toblerone speech on the future of the Labour Party, but one of the, mm. the, the big differences, I think, between Blair in 1994 and any of the candidates now is in 1994, Tony Blair had been shadow employment secretary and he'd changed Labour's position on trade union law. He had been shadow home secretary and he'd changed Labour's position on crime. He had an, a pre-existing reputation among the electorate and among the press. Yeah. So his whole leadership election was calibrated around reassuring Labour members, which is why he pandered so hard that China was using him for diplomatic efforts, right? Like, yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> whereas... Keir Starmer does not have a pre-existing reputation among the press or voters other than that Labour guy who kind of seems a bit solid and has like a reassuring leaderly chin. He, he just is ambigu- ambiguous through dint of the fact that he is, this is I think one of the earliest bids for leader than we have yeah. ever mm. seen. Even the other ones which are kind of semi-comparable, you know, Ed Miliband and Ed Balls have both been in Parliament for only five years, as Keir Starmer has only been in Parliament for five years, but they had been, you know, seated at the right hand of Gordon Brown mm. for a decade before. David Cameron Ditto had only been in Parliament for less than five years when he ran for leader, but he had had a front row seat as a special advisor. You know, this is a, a very different level of neophytism. Yeah, I think and that, that's a really good context and explanation for why he now has this sort of reputation for being all things to all people in a way, you know, mm-hmm. go at the LGBT hustings, not being able to answer whether he prefers Madonna or Cher and saying both. I mean, that just sort of sum, sums up the kind of reputation that he's building by the fact that he has to say things that are reassuring both to members and to MPs and to the public because we actually don't know what kind of things he would be saying to any of them because he hasn't had to do that it's Cher I think (laughs) (laughs) I actually genuinely think Cher is one of the real disappointments of Mamma Mia 2 why did they put it in the no. trailer? Why did they put it in the trailer? Imagine how much better it would be if just like, <laughs> if she bam, just she just turns up and it's un- just, yeah, just unexpected. Yeah. Oh, but her entire album of ABBA covers is incredible, better than the original. <laughs> Whoa, yeah. that's controversial. Yeah. You're never going to be able to run for Labour leadership with those views. These are the kind of opinions we needed from Keir. And the thing I'm quite interested in is whether you think that this constructive ambiguity is a conscious thing. Because Patrick's been working on a, on a long profile of Starmer. And without giving the game away, I suppose like his conclusion so far is that Keir Starmer is what he says on the tin, that he does seem to believe the values that he has been professing during the campaign. So I, I'm just interested in whether he is desperately telling people what his values are and what he believes and how he's going to lead the Labour Party and people are sceptical because he looks like a Blairite because he's in a suit and he has a strong jawline as you say or whether he is in some sense trying to promote this idea that maybe he will be more pragmatic or he will keep the the right of the party happy as well because that's also more advantageous to him. It's a really good question, right? And without wishing to, you know, lift the lid on Patrick's profile, I, I think that people are slightly underestimating the extent to which he just does believe what he says, right? Mm. Keir's pitch is in many ways entirely what you would expect from someone from the middle of the party. I mean, in many ways, Keir Starmer is actually the last brown eye, right? As in, no, I don't mean that as in an ideological sense, partly because I don't think in a meaningful sense there was an ideological difference between Blairism and Brownism. But he is the last person in Labour politics to owe their political position. Now, obviously, he's a hugely qualified lawyer, yeah, very impressive CV. But his political position 
is partly due to his political proximity to Gordon Brown, right? Yeah, obviously you become DPP because you are well qualified, but you also become DPP because of the political desires of the of the government at the time. He was someone who was known to Gordon Brown, who receives advice from Gordon Brown now, who receives advice from Ed Miliband now. I just think in many ways, like ultimately, the reason why he's running in that kind of like left brown eye, you know, that position we would have pro- previously associated John Trickett with before he kind of like became a sort of full on Corbyn loyalist is because that is where his political pedigree and background indicates that he is from. However, I think the thing that people find confusing about that is that basically the two things Keir has been really consistent on in this are being very specific about the necessary mandate you would need to kick out anti-Semites in the Labour Party. And he has been incredibly where the membership are on left economics. And I think the weird thing is, is what it shows is that almost everyone has internalised the false argument. And in many ways, it kind of lets some of the Corbynites off the hook, right? This idea that the only way you could have had this economic position was to, like, turn the blind eye to every, like, mural and bigot who happened to post some terrible view on Facebook. But that is, of course, untrue. And ultimately, I just don't think this is that much of a pivot yeah. from Keir. And I also think maybe we all, not just the members, but I think maybe we all have Corbyn goggles because part of Jeremy Corbyn's appeal and something that each of the candidates still praise him for is the fact that he sort of managed to speak his mind about where he thought the Labour Party should be and that meant that he could break with a lot of the sort of consensus that they'd they'd slipped into on economics and other issues and that he could say truly radical things. But actually... That means that we're sort of equating that with not being pragmatic at all. And so when each of these candidates compromises or says things that we might believe that they don't actually think or they're trying to please two sides of of the Labour Party, it sounds to us like they're being slippery. But actually, maybe this is just sort of pragmatic leadership coming back. And it sounds slippery because we're so used to Jeremy Corbyn just being like, yeah, you know. Yeah, I think there is also kind of this element almost where like what you might call the Corbyn aesthetic. And I by the Corbyn aesthetic, I, I primarily mean actually a Corbyn aesthetic that had been entirely eliminated from Corbyn's look by 2019. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the nice fawn blazer and, the, you know, and the, the rest of that kind of sort of geography teacher look, yeah. I think means that people kind of go like, oh, as Alva says, right? So he's a Blairite because he like wears nice suits mm. of a certain type, right? Mm. But of course, the two don't relate. You see it a little bit, actually, with Becky Long-Bailey, who, yeah, one of the sort of hilarious unremarked things in this leadership election is Becky is running to the right of Kieran. Yeah, she is. Mm. She you know, is. Like, and yet I keep seeing these tweets from kind of, you know, Tribune people and sort of like, you know, the kind of like, you know, public intellectuals in support of Becky Long-Bailey, in which she, they talk about it as if she were, like, holding the line. It's like... Guys, she said she'd drop the bomb. Like, yeah, yeah like, she yeah. said she'd drop the bomb. She's doing all sorts of things that you wouldn't expect a sort of Corbyn continuity She's candidate to say. The only one to have said, real talk, guys, free movement will have gone by yeah. 2024, yeah. and it's probably not coming back. And actually, back. what's yeah. really interesting is if, I don't make a habit of this, but if you read the Canaries piece telling its readers who to vote for, they pick up on all of those things, because obviously they're never happy with the purity of left-wing candidates. But... She is. I mean, if you read the downsides to each of the candidates that the, the canary lays out, then, then it really does look like well, she's this, running I mean, to honestly, the right of both are, of the other every candidates. Every day is full of surprises. Yeah. I mean, if you'd said to me, like, name a media organisation, Anoush will encourage our readers to read. I actually think I would have listed every media organisation <laughs> under the sun before I had got to the canary. Yeah, I'm but, not telling you to read it. I'm just... But, you know, it, but it, it, is, it is nonetheless sort of striking. I mean, I, you know, I saw someone say, oh, yeah, it's, it's easy to... 
promise left-wing policies in the Labour leadership election. And it's just like, I mean, that is certainly true. And this was like, you know, why you shouldn't vote for Keynes. It's like, that is certainly true, right? I, to be honest, believe that all of the candidates will end up leading the Labour Party to the right of where they they are running, right? I just, just think that that is where they will end up for a variety of kind of, you know, electoral tactics center of you know the center of gravity in terms of the people who they will who will not they will want to bring on side in the plp just a variety of factors i mean i think they will end up you know not significantly but a little bit to the right of where they're running but it's just like guys so the argument is it's tough not to pivot to the left therefore the person who has pivoted furthest to the right will be the person i mean the thing is right it does semi-work in and it shows <laughs> like courage goes to but it shows though. courage right like yeah. actually mm-hmm. like becky long bailey is the only candidate who has been genuinely courageous in terms of political positioning now i think that is one of the reasons why you can take such a dim view of her inability to in that clip where someone went how are we get these traitors to vote for us the fact that she is was unable to go look we don't talk about people like that i think because she's shown courage ironically you can go okay well you've, you've opted not to do it there but genuinely if you're actually looking for a candidate who's shown bravery in this leadership race <laughs> it is the person who both her critics and her some of her supporters are talking about as if she like has genuinely stood up and gone not one single line of this document will be changed or altered in any way which yeah it's not not true and we realized before we went on air and i've only seen it written down and i think that every word with a t at the end is actually has a silent t so the marmo the marmo <laughs> review uh the marmot review on uh the state of health inequality. The and have and the have knows. <laughs> so, yeah, Anoush, what does it say? So the Marmot report that came out yesterday is an update on the sort of review 10 years ago on health inequality, where a public health professor, expert, Sir Michael Marmot, predicted that, you know, health inequality and sort of inequality in general in society was going to get a lot worse and that we, you know, that we had a decade to try and fix it. And now that we've had that decade... The lost decade, as it's as it's labelled, he said that the results are shocking and that actually life expectancy is flatlining for the first time in a hundred years, and actually life expectancy for the most deprived women has gone down. So there are some really shocking findings in it, and for the first time, because he's been quite reticent about this being a sort of academic and very measured and balanced in the way that he's interpreted the findings so far, he said that austerity has contributed to this flatlining mm. and that people's health and health inequality is going to get worse because of austerity. So those were the main findings from from this sort of update. And it's just one of those things where it makes you think, I've been thinking about what I call now paper poverty or, or paper anti-poverty more, more accurately, which is there are these reviews and reports and press releases and, you know, responses from the opposition and defensive responses from the government and great reports in The Guardian writing up all the details of these reports, but nothing ever really happens because of them, and I just don't know how you fix mm. that. Obviously, the Marmot Review is really important because it's, it provides milestones for, for the extent that inequality is widening in this country, and that's important for the press to mark, but it just feels... This kind of way of covering poverty feels really hollow <laughs> yes. to me. So I was on politics live yesterday does this come out on the same day is it it does is for important? subscribers so, yeah, it so does subscribe. for special guys so, yeah. so yesterday for subscribers <laughs> um, for subscribers only and we were discussing this and I was uh, struck by exactly what you were saying about how dispiriting it is that these evidence based reports that take a large amount of time conducted by experts can be so quickly discredited 
by members of the party that that it criticizes mm. um it just reminded me of that un report yes, um yeah. which was so damning on the impact of, of austerity on on child poverty and so on in the uk it was a sort of live example to me it was on with conservative minister Gillian keegan of the way you can attack the man rather than the content though you can question the motivations of a report like that and you can tap into that very live skepticism about the value of experts because yeah reading through it it is so clear and there there is the top line that austerity has massively contributed to it mm. but i think that people might find that difficult to accept but it's when you dive into the detail of it austerity wasn't just one thing really yeah. so the report isn't just about one thing it's about how you know this particular policy didn't work yeah. <laughs> this particular policy didn't work cutting cutting funding here resulted in this you know this particular sanction disincentivized this it's an account of the failure of austerity as an ideological project rather than a research driven one what yeah. do you make of it, Stephen? I think what I found interesting about the response to it, and one, as Anusha says, the thing I kind of find, have been thinking a lot about is how do we break out our coverage of poverty beyond mm-hmm. a serious report happens, a serious report kind of confirms something. That, like from an intuitive perspective, right, like ultimately there are two separate arguments, right? There's the argument that cutting public spending in the way to the timetable that was attempted was the correct approach to the financial crisis and the state of the public finances afterwards which weirdly has mutated since then. In 2010, their message was it's hurting, but it's working. Now you have this weird situation where people go like, actually, it's not true to say it hurt. And it's like, well, one, that's obviously incoherent because your government is in of itself unpicking some of these public spending cuts. But the other kind of thing I have been thinking about, yeah, is that weird incoherence of the way that the Conservative Party has sort of weirdly kind of stopped. Because what I thought was interesting watching you on, on that programme was that I feel that if that had happened even two years ago, you know, in the last bit of, no, actually not two years, five years, God, it's been so long since David Cameron was Prime Minister, then I genuinely think that, a, you know, a politician like Gillian Keegan would have gone, yes, it's been very difficult for some people, but the reason why we had to do this is we inherited X, Y, Z. I don't agree that cutting spending at a downturn when the economy is not a peak. Yeah, I, I do think precisely, actually, the Conservatives ended up having the right economic policy at the wrong time. And I think, actually, increasing spending now when the economy may well be at full capacity without having tax rises does mean you end up with problematic inflationary pressures. But that economic argument is entirely separate to the obvious argument that, of course, cutting public spending does have implications for the people who are in receipt of those services. I mean... Yeah. Of course. And yeah, I similarly don't really know what what is the way that you kind of break out of this kind of, yeah. oh, here's a report, it's very sad. Alva really hit the nail on the head when, when you said it, it's not just austerity, it's it's that the, there were policies implemented that didn't work. And I think maybe the curse of this whole thing is, is the word austerity, which mm. Tories generally refuse to even use. And the Labour Party perhaps uses too much as an all-encompassing sort of what's the opposite of a silver bullet, like a tin, Mm. a rusty tin (laughs) bullet, um, which has ruined everything. And actually, austerity was an ideological project, but it was a series of different decisions that were made about different spending departments and local government spending that haven't shown themselves to have worked and also have been, in many cases, counterproductive because they make things more expensive because usually you're now trying to help people in crisis rather than prevent the crisis from happening in the first place. So I think maybe that's part of it. Maybe that, and this is something actually, not to go back to the Labour leadership, but this is something Lisa and Andy was talking about in my interview with her. 
maybe the sort of doom and gloom austerity is responsible for everything narrative has kind of made it easier for Conservative MPs and other people who defend the cuts to kind of brush it all off and be like, oh, no, you know. Yeah, and now we're putting all this money into building yeah, exactly. whatever and new hospitals and, and, and those kinds of figures. I think the, the most jarring thing for me was that it was a reminder of what we were talking about last week, that the Conservatives are pulling off this this image of total discontinuity. Like they don't, They've just managed to change their leader and run an election on different policies and no one seems to be holding them to the record of previous yeah, Conservative governments. Weirdly, some people think that austerity is by the Labour Party, like because a lot of the places that are hardest mm. hit are run by Labour councils. So people associate mm. the impact of austerity with the status quo in their area, which is often they've never had sort of local leadership that hasn't been the Labour Party. And, I mean, you can obviously blame the Conservative government, successive Conservative governments for that because it's sort of a, a trick, isn't it? But also, you can blame the Labour Party slightly because of, it's actually, a bit of a comms failure, I isn't it? I think you can actually blame the Labour Party a great deal, right? Yeah. Because... Ultimately, I think you do have to, and this is, you know, I think one of the many problems with some of Labour's internal discourse, and I think it was one of the most interesting things in Ashcroft's report, is actually how much in some parts of the country where you have a Labour council where there is no turnover of councillors, where you essentially have a situation where for a very long time elections by the membership, access to which has often been very tightly controlled, has been far more significant in terms of who runs services, mm. and you have not particularly inspiring leadership that does not do much political leadership, right? I think about my own local borough in Hackney, where I feel like I can't pick up, you know, the council free sheet or a consultation without being reminded, like, yeah, every time they consult about something which involves cutting spending, you get this big kind of like, because the Conservative government has cut our our X, Y, Z. And I just kind of think, well, ultimately, I'm afraid whenever I hear a Labour MP say, in my area, my voters believe that it's the fault of the local council when these services are cut. I'm just like, I'm, you know, I'm going to sound like Emily Thornberry. Either, and I don't believe this one, either your voters are, are uniquely dumb, which I don't believe, mm. or, which I think is much more likely, your council is worse at politics than all of the other Labour and yeah. Lib Dem council. Like, the mm. Lib Dems, who literally went into coalition midway through the thing, we nuked half of their support electorally, had a Brexit policy which was you know, very divisive at first, particularly among the, some of their remaining support, have still managed to hold councils by going, mm, no, actually, these cuts. So I think there has been a failure of on-the-ground politics on the part of, of some local authorities to explain why they're, they're doing this. But I think in terms of your point about austerity, having there being two parts of it, because mm. yeah, one of the things, of course, we've talked about a lot on this podcast is if you were going to cut public spending, it's a mistake to have done what successive Conservative governments have done and go, oh, there's this magic thing called the NHS and we won't cut that, but we will cut kind of interrelated health spending yeah. because you actually just end up with the NHS money vanishing down a thousand tiny holes in it. In an odd way, and one, it's one of the reasons why I don't really use the word austerity very often because I just think a lot of the time it means that you end up having this argument about, you know, like the Osborne 2010 budget being yes. all bad yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than a like okay, given that, now the spending taps have turned on, is it a good idea to maintain the cuts to council spending and increase NHS spending? No, I think it's a lunatic idea. Mm. Because that is the one weird thing. Because I think it's, in a way, I would be perfectly happy in a situation where the Conservatives had done this thing where they were like, whoops, we lost your last decade, but don't worry, we've got a great plan to find the next one. If there was a serious engagement with the things Cameron had got right and the things he'd got wrong, you know, like if there was a kind of serious, like, so take like one of the things in that piece, which is sanctions don't work, right? Ultimately, if you want to save money in the welfare budget, actually just get rid of job centres. Yeah, as long as you have a basic safety net, most people will fall on the safety net 
mm. find work which will pay them better than the basic safety net and they will not lapse into penury and you actually would save much more by cutting down on staff rather than having a measure of compulsion right if, if that is a way mm. you're humane where you want to reduce that budget however i don't know if that will work better maybe it's partly just about saving myself from the depression of once again being like if you do this you're not gonna like the outcome <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleague Anusha Kelly, and our political correspondents, Patrick McGuire and Alva Ray. The music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Thank you very much for your emails containing various questions. We really enjoy reading them, writing about them, and discussing on this podcast. So please do tweet, email, Facebook, or otherwise contact us with more You Ask Us questions. And thank you very much to the listener who sent us a CD of some music that we could potentially replace Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.